Well, it is great to be with you folks today. Um, again, my name is Andrew, if you haven't heard it like at least 50 times already. So I'm, I'm happy to be with you. I'm from New Hampshire, uh, like Pastor, Gre- Pastor Chris said. Pastor Greg's not here today. found it interesting how both Pastor Greg and Pastor Chris conveniently planned to not be in here today. So <laughs> here we go. Here we go. But no, it is good to be with you. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to be at your church. I've really enjoyed not only the, the, the scenery around here, this is crazy, all the mountains and the snow, um, but I'm excited for the, the ability to, to be in a church that is very different from something I've ever been in, um, a church in a different context, but a church in which we still worship Jesus Christ and Christ is still the, still the center. And I think that's the coolest thing about visiting different churches is that, yeah, we're different in many ways, but in reality, the very center, the core, Christ is there. And that's who we're worshiping today. That's who we're worshiping. So I'm going to um, open this up in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into the material for today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful. I pray that this morning it would not return void, and that we would benefit from it, that we would um, apply it to our hearts, and that it, we would not just learn of it, but that we would um, put it into our souls and that we would um, benefit from your word and your Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So, Lord, please give wisdom, give insight this morning as we study your word together. In your, in your name, amen. So, we're going to be in 1 John for the next few weeks, and I should have put a PowerPoint together, but we'll be in 1 John. And this morning, my goal is to give us an, an overview, a foundation of where we're going with this. Um, I kind of like to be a little bit interactive. So how many of you really enjoy road trips? Road trips, okay. All right, I really wanted to road trip out here. I was back and forth if I was gonna fly or if I was gonna um, drive a truck out. And I decided to fly, it's a lot cheaper. And eight hours of flying versus, you know, 30 hours of driving. Well, it's pretty easy to make a decision when you you come to that conclusion. But road trips, when you go on a road trip, there's a couple things that you really need to take into account beforehand. Stuff like weather, stuff like your directions, uh, tolls, gas prices, mechanical difficulties, traffic flow, and all that kind of stuff. You have to know these things before you jump into a road trip, okay? So if I'm, I've I've driven from New Hampshire to South Carolina, where I go to college quite a few times, and one really key thing you need to know is what's what's the weather like, all right? Look at the weather ahead of time and say, I'm gonna hit some some rain in Pennsylvania around two or three p.m. So I need to make sure my wiper blades are good, my lights are working, you know, I'm all set, all right? Um, maybe traffic. Maybe it's a really bad idea to drive the day after Memorial Day, okay? You might come across a lot of RVs and boats on trailers, all right? So take that into account. Maybe you drive a car that is a little bit older and has some mechanical difficulties. It's prone to, to burn oil or maybe have overheating problems, all right? So it might be a good idea that take that into account. You have an extra quart of oil with you or you have some more radiator fluid or something like that. You're prepared ahead of time. Maybe you uh, look at the, the, the route you're going to take and you say there's some tolls and so I'm going to take a different route so I don't pay 20 bucks in tolls going through New York City and I'm going to um, add a few extra minutes but I'll save some money in the end. So all these things are, are things that we should take into account before we begin our road trip. When we begin our journey into 1 John, I think it's very, very good to lay a good foundation and to understand where is our destination, where are we going, 
What are some things that we might encounter along the way? What are some things that we should be prepared for? Should we know our vehicle well? Should we know the text really well? And so my purpose this morning is to give us a good foundation. My goal, my goal is to, to demonstrate to you folks here how the Apostle John clearly wrote his book, clearly wrote this letter, this Christocentric letter, meaning Christ is at the very center of it. And as he's writing this letter, he's correcting problems within Christianity. And so my goal this morning is to, is to show us, to lay a good foundation for that. So we're going to address a couple different points. We're going to talk about, about the author of 1 John, which is pretty self-explanatory, but we'll go over that anyway. Uh, we're going to talk about the audience and the context of 1 John. And we'll, we'll talk about some specific difficulties that the congregation was facing at the time. We're going to talk about some, maybe some troubling sections, some things that we might have to work through eventually. And then we'll jump into the first four verses at the very end to conclude our time together. So if you have your Bibles and you're not already at 1 John, we're going to get there in a little bit. But just let, let's, let's think through some of the context and different aspects of our journey this morning. So number one, the author. The author of 1 John. Now this might seem pretty self-explanatory, and it is. Guess who the author was? Yeah, that's right, it's John, okay? So John is the author. Now there is some debate and discussion in scholarly circles about what John is actually the author. There's the Apostle John, there's John Mark, there's a few other Johns that are mentioned in historic Christianity that could have potentially been the authors. But for the sake of clarity this morning, we're going to assume that the Apostle John, the one who walked with Christ, is the author of this book because of various stylistic tendencies and the vocabulary that John used in this, in this text of 1 John and how it relates to the Gospel of John as well. And so we're going we're gonna to just, we're going to make that our assumption. It's a fair assumption to make. If you have more questions about that and you want more details, I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards and give you some of the really specific uh, vocabulary and stylistic details about that. So we know that the Apostle John, we're going to assume that the Apostle John wrote this letter. Another important thing to know about John is that he had a very close and personal connection with Jesus Christ, right? And we read about this in the Gospels, and John writes about this in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. So John wrote it, and he had a very close and personal connection with Christ. Now we're going to jump into the second thing I want to talk about is the audience and the context. The context meaning what was going on in, in the church at the time that John wrote this letter. So why is it important that we understand our audience? All right, think of it like this. Let's say Ben over here. I met Ben yesterday in the hike, and we had a great time hiking. I loved, I loved hiking. It was really good. I got to talk to Ben for a while. And let's say I wrote Ben a letter in 2023, and we talked about some, some issues that the church was facing at the time. And they're very, very specific issues related to our culture within 2023. Now, 50 years later in 2027, is that correct? 2027. Um, sorry, 2073. Goodness, I can't think. In 2073, we open up that letter again. And maybe Ben's kids or my kids someday, we, they read that letter. And they are looking at some of the issues and they're like, I don't really understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, they're not living in the time that I wrote the letter to Ben, all right? So we need to understand this as we approach 1 John, is that as we read it, John was writing to a very specific audience. He had a very specific people in mind with very specific issues in their day. And so we need to get that into our mind before we just jump into the letter and, and, and 
try to apply everything to us right now, okay? We need to understand that John was writing it to a very specific group of believers for a specific purpose, and it's written for us. The Bible was written for us, but it was specifically written to a certain people. So the audience is important. So number one, the audience was, these people that John is writing to were very closely connected to John. Now, how do we know that? So if you open up your Bibles to 1 John, you'll notice if you read through like the first, the first four verses, John doesn't mention his name. He doesn't mention that he is the one writing this book, all right? If you read other works by, by Paul or by Peter in the New Testament, you'll see that, that they, they open up their sections talking about who they are. So, for example, James starts his book, James, a servant of God. Um, Paul in Colossians says, Paul, an apostle of Christ. So you can see they, they begin their works by addressing who they are, giving their credentials, and then jumping into the material that they have for their specific audience. John doesn't do that. There's some debate as to why John doesn't do that, but we can assume that these people, these people know who John is. John has been really closely connected to them. He's been interacting with them for some time now, and so it's not necessary to, to introduce himself at the beginning. These people know who he is. So they're very closely connected to Paul. Second, another important thing to know about this audience is that they were going through an intense amount of persecution and dispersion in the church. So let's back up in church history. You have a lot of Christians right after Pentecost in this Palestinian area, all right, in Israel that we could think of it at the time. And because of governmental changes, because of the authorities in power not liking Christianity, we're simplifying this, there was persecution. And what happened was the, the, the Christians in the Palestinian area, they dispersed. They, they went out. They had to flee. And we call this the Great Dispersion. And so Christians were spread out all over the area, all over the Middle East, Asia Minor, Northern Africa, moving, in, moving their way into Eastern Asia. All right? And they're, they're being spread out. What is also happening is this localized persecution. Localized meaning it's happening at the very local level. That would be like maybe the sheriff's county, and they would come into Liberty, they would come to our church here, and they would say, hey, you can't have church here anymore. Now, you know, hopefully that would never happen. But that, that's kind of like what's happening in the church now. The authorities were coming to the local congregations and saying, you can't meet. They're persecuting them. They're disbanding them. They had, to, they had to flee, all right? And so what would happen? What would happen if that happened in our church? Well, we'd probably, we'd still like to worship, so we'd probably go to people's houses, right? We'd secretly go to a house over here and a house over here and a house over here, and we'd have our service. We'd open up the Word of God, and we'd worship God together, but we'd be in separate places. That's exactly what's happening at this point in 1 John. That John, John is writing to a people who are meeting in very small, close-knit communities that are because of the localized persecution. So persecution is a big thing. Um, another area in which we know that persecution was happening is if we look at the context of James and 1 Peter as well. If you read the first uh, verse in, in James, it says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion Greetings. So he's talking to a group of people who are involved in the dispersion. In 1 Peter, Peter says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so those two, those two letters were written about 30 years prior to this, prior to John writing. And so because of that, we know that it, well, it's likely to assume that the same persecution that James and Peter were facing, and their church was facing, is still facing the people that John is talking to as well. 
So persecution is a big thing. So these people know John well. They're very close to John, and they're facing a lot of persecution. There's dispersion. And then as a result of that, there is a lot of false teaching that is permeating the church. So number three, false teaching. Now, what kind of, what kind of false teaching are we facing here? To understand the false teaching, we have to look at the text, and from the text, we can see what John is correcting the people and encouraging them in. And if we see that, that John is correcting them in these specific areas, it's likely to assume that they were facing false teaching in those same areas. And so John is correcting them. It's like they have false teaching here, and John is saying, no, 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 that's not right. Come back over here. Come back over here. He's correcting them. And we see this stuff over here. We see the correction. We don't necessarily see the false teaching being permeated. But we do have an idea of what specifically, what kind of false teaching that they were facing. And one of, one of the issues that they were facing was the identity of Jesus Christ. And we see this in chapter 1 and also specifically chapter 4. John's emphasis in this letter seems to indicate that, that one of the problems that the church is facing is an incorrect view of Christ, specifically the combination of Christ's humanity and Christ's deity. The people have begun to believe that there is this sort of disconnect, all right? this disconnection between Jesus' body and his spirit. Claims were being made such as people, people were believing that Jesus didn't even have a body, that they believed he was just a spirit. And you see in John's writing, he very specifically addresses Christ as body and spirit. Okay. Now, there's a word that we use in theology, and this is one of those words that you can you know, write on a note card, and you kind of leave it like on your kitchen counter or, or somewhere where people see it, and you just kind of leave this word out, and people think you're really smart and really academic. All right? um, that was a tactic by my biology teacher in high school told me. He's like, you know, ribonucleic acid, write that down and leave that out on your counter and your parents will be really impressed with you, okay? So here's your 25 cent word for the day, all right? The word is Gnosticism, Gnosticism, okay? In theology, this is a term that we use talking about the dualism between spirit and matter, saying that spirit is over here and matter is over here and there's a very clear disconnect. Now I mentioned Gnosticism because Gnosticism was this false teaching that began to permeate the church in the second to fifth century of historic Christianity. Okay? Now, this is right about the time when John is writing the letter. So the advent of Gnosticism in the church is right when John is, is, is writing his letter to these believers. Now, Gnosticism, let me explain what it is. And this is a very basic definition. If you want to talk more about it and study it more, I encourage you to do that. Um, but the idea is that, one, there's a dualism. There's a separation between spirit and matter. And also, they believe, Gnostics believe, that there is a higher view of truth. There's this extra-biblical view of truth, meaning in order to have a full understanding of salvation, you must have some spiritual enlightenment. You must have some, some knowledge that comes outside of the Bible, essentially. And so, a, a result of this, first of all, a result of the dualism between spirit and matter means this. If life exists outside of the spirit, okay, if life exists, or sorry, if life exists in the spirit, if my salvation is found in the spirit, then who cares what I do with my body? Because they're totally separate. So what happens is, is the people in the time, they're doing whatever they want. They were sinning. They were, they were committing adultery because they could do whatever they wanted with their body because they were saved in the spirit. And if there's a clear disconnect, then who cares what I do over here as long as I'm still saved in the spirit? Another result of Gnosticism is this, again, the higher view of truth. 
So people believed that they had to acquire a deeper mystical knowledge. And so in order to really be saved, you had to know more and you had to believe more and have more of this mystic revelation in your life. And what it created was an elite class of people who had this ability to really know the Bible and really know Christianity and really have salvation. Now, let me make a note about this. It's unclear whether or not John is writing in a direct response to this trend. But because of the rapid, rapid development and the proliferation of this trend between the second and fifth centuries, it's most likely a really significant contributing factor in John's writing. Because of the rise, I think it's good to mention this. I think it's good to, to discuss this topic, even though we might not face it a lot nowadays, and we're not completely sure John is writing um, to combat Gnosticism. I think it's good to talk about because it does interact with the claims of who Christ is. It, it, Gnostics would believe that Christ is, is very sep is separated. His body and his spirit are separated. And that's the, that's the issues that, those are the issues that John is addressing in his book, to, in his letter to this church. So that's why we, went, why we mentioned it. All right, I don't want to spend too much more time on that, so we're going to move on. So we know so far that John wrote the letter. John is very close with his audience. John is very um, involved with them. He, he writes to them frequently. These people are suffering immense persecution right now. And these people are, because of that, suffering a lot of, or they're involved in a lot of false teaching. False teaching is permeating the church. But there's one more thing that is permeating this church as well, and that is a lot of conflict with believers. We read in um, chapter 3 and chapter 4 specifically, John is encouraging these people to have a correct interpersonal relationship with each other. He's correct. He, he's addressing the interpersonal relationships within the church. So how person A is interacting with person B, okay? And there's tension there. There's some conflict. And John is very blunt in addressing, saying, hey, stop it. Don't do that. That's not how a Christian should live. And so um, there is some intense conflict happening between the people in the church. And we can see that John combats this with his emphasis on loving others, a topic that we'll cover quite a bit um, in our study in 1 John. So there we go. There, there's some, some basic facts. I, I know that kind of sounded like a lecture, and part of this will be that. Um, but we, it's really important that we lay a good foundation for this book as we jump into it. We have to know what they, these people are going through as we, so we have a correct understanding of the text that John has written. Now, this is what we're going to do. We're going to back up, okay? And we're going we're gonna to jump on a plane, and we're going to look at this book from like a 30,000-foot view, okay? If you've ever been up in an airplane, you look down, you can see everything. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to back up in the plane, and we're going to look down and see 1 John. And there's three main parts in 1 John, three different sections. There's one theme, though. The theme of 1 John is the essentials of the Christian life. This is like, this is like the thesis statement of 1 John, the essentials of the Christian life. And here are the three essentials, okay? Number one, we have doctrine, and we can see doctrine over here. Doctrine meaning a correct view of, of Christ, of Christology. And then following doctrine, we have obedient living, how you should live. Okay? So I know what's right. I know what's true. Therefore, what should I, how should I live? And then the third section is devotion. Now, devotion is over here, okay? And it's kind of laid out chronologically in the book, although John jumps around quite a bit in his book. He's very cyclical. 
meaning he comes back to topics, he'll mention them, then he'll leave, and then he'll come back to it again. He's not like Paul. Paul would like do the instruction manual, and he'd be like step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, bam, all right? John is different. John's like step one, step three, step two, step five, step four, and he's like jumping all over the place, all right? But they still make the same thing in the end, and John still communicates his point. So we have doctrine, which leads to obedient living, and then we take both of those things, doctrine and obedient living, we put them together in a nice Christmas present, we wrap them up, and we tie them with a bow of devotion. All right? you, you know these things, do these things, and now be devoted to those two things. So that's a 30,000-foot view of the book of 1 John. There are some troubling sections in 1 John that we will address, um, but just to give you a, a brief preview of them, there are some issues about, about legalism. You might, you might read through 1 John, and you might tend to believe that John is a little legalistic, meaning he's telling you to do certain things in order to have a better standing with God, or doing these things will lead to salvation. Um, it's important to note, we'll, we'll talk about these specific issues as we study the book, but it's really good to know the context of who he's writing to. Remember, John is writing to people with very specific problems, and he's addressing very specific needs. And so know that, but also look at the book holistically meaning look at the book as one big letter, right? Don't look at it with chapter divisions and all that. Look at it as one big letter that John is writing to these people. And if you do that, it'll make working through these sections a lot easier. And again, like I said, we'll talk, we'll talk and work through these sections as they come up in our study. So here we go. We've laid a foundation. There's the, there, there, it's like we're pouring the concrete for the house, okay? There it is. We've started the foundation for the book of 1 John. Now let's jump into the first four verses, okay? So if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step back, and we're going to get a running start, a running start right into this book, okay? To do that, let's look at the life of John really quick. John, James and John were out in a boat one day, all right? Read back in, in Luke. James and John were in a boat with their two other friends, Andrew and Simon Peter. Andrew and Simon Peter were told by this random guy on the shore to cast their net on the other side of the boat in order to find more fish. And John is watching as this happens, thinking that, hey, this isn't going to work. All of a sudden, the nets are pulled up with hundreds and hundreds of fish. John watches as this man on the shore gave instructions to the other two people, to his, to his other two friends, and as a result, a miraculous event occurred. Talking with this man on the beach a little bit later, this man says to the four individuals, follow me, and I will make you not fishers of fish anymore, but fishers of men. And at that point, John dedicates his life to following Christ, and he becomes a fisher of men. Now, John personally walked with Jesus. He, he interacted with Jesus on a daily basis. In fact, he was one of the three disciples that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. In fact, they were so close to Jesus, they went where some of the other disciples didn't go. They got to see Jairus' daughter raised in Mark 5. They got to witness the transfiguration in Matthew 6, 17. They were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew, in Matthew 26. John was the disciple who Jesus loved. John was the disciple who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying, and Jesus spoke down to John and said, John, my brother, take care of my mother Mary. Jesus entrusted John to take care of his mother. That's how close they were. John was there when, when the tomb was empty. He, he was one of the two that ran to the tomb to see it empty. 
John was there in the upper room when Jesus appeared to the 12 disciples. John was there when Jesus ascended back into heaven. John was there when, at Pentecost, when the miraculous event occurred and people began to speak different languages. John was one of the 12 apostles who preached, who preached the gospel to every nation. And he taught and he instructed the church and, and gave regular instruction. John was there when all of his other brothers died in persecution. In fact, John is the only one that did not die a martyr. John died of old age. John was there when his brother in Acts 12, James, was killed by the sword. And at this point in John's life, he's an old man. John is writing the book, this letter, to these people as an old man, knowing that these are his final words. This is the final thing he's going to say. So put yourself in John's shoes. What do you say? What do you say to a church that you love so dearly, a church that is suffering intense persecution, a church that is going through a lot, a church that is at war and conflict with each other? What do you say? This is what John says. These are his last words. 1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life, Christ, it was, he was made manifest to us, and we have seen it, and we have testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And here is John's purpose in writing. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What does John say as his final words? He talks about Christ. He talks about who Jesus was, how he was, this is the Jesus that, that John walked with, he talked to, he interacted with, he touched, he looked upon. And this was the, this was the Christ who was God made manifest to us, God in human form. And the purpose of this, John is saying, is that he, he's writing about Christ. He's writing all of these things to you so that your joy may be complete. So what is this joy? Let's focus on joy for just a, a few minutes before we end. What is this joy? Joy in the Greek, the word is kara, meaning cheerfulness. That is a calm, delight, gladness, greatly exceeding joy. So if we boil that down, joy is cheerful, overflowing delight. Now that means absolutely nothing. Why do I say that? That sounds a little bit odd. That definition means absolutely nothing if we do not have a source to tie that joy to. So what is the source of this joy? Where does this cheerful, overflowing delight, where does it come from? It needs to come from something. Verses 1 through 3, that which is from the beginning, Christ. John is saying that the joy that you have we want your joy to be complete, but that joy must be based in Christ. And so John is having experienced Christ. He knows Christ. He, he knows the true source, source of joy. So a joy comes from Christ. But another question that I had, I think all of us have too, we want joy, but how do we get this joy? And to understand how we get this joy, we're actually going to go back really quick to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 through 23. And if you're familiar with Galatians, you know what passage I'm talking about. 
Galatians 5, 22 through 23 answers the question of how we obtain this joy. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So where does joy come from? Well, according to Paul, joy comes from the Spirit. Joy comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, believers, we also know that, that when Jesus came, when Jesus did his work on the cross, he gave us the helper. We read this in John 14 and 15. Christ gave us the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's, it's like Christ is always with us. We objectively have the Holy Spirit. If we are a believer, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, what do we do with that Spirit? What do we do with the Spirit in our life? This is where the subjective side of things comes in. This is where we need to do the work. We have the Spirit, but what do we do with Him? Well, joy, joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. Joy is not produced by ourselves. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Galatians 5. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit as we allow and foster the Spirit's working in our hearts. Let me say it this way. Supernatural joy is supernaturally produced by the supernatural Holy Spirit as we allow and as we foster the Spirit's working in our hearts. So how do we get this joy that John is talking about? We allow the Holy Spirit free reign in our hearts. It's like we're, we planted a peach tree, all right? Let's say I bought a peach tree from Lowe's, I brought it home. In order for that tree to grow and for that tree to produce fruit, I must nourish it, I must foster it. I must feed it with water and fertilizer. And if I do those things, that tree will grow. But if I neglect it, if I don't allow the tree space, if I don't allow the tree resources to grow, then it's not gonna grow. The same is true with the Spirit in our own lives. We all have the Spirit. As believers, we have the Spirit indwelling inside of us. It's a promise that Christ gave. But what do you do with that Spirit? You see, joy is not something that we have to muster up. Joy is not something we have to force into our interpersonal interactions with others on a daily basis. No, we cannot produce joy. The Spirit is the one that produces joy inside of us. But we can foster the Spirit's growth in our own life. So what does this mean? Well, believers, like I said, we have the Spirit. We have it. Objectively, we have the Spirit inside of us. And we can choose what to do and how to grow that Spirit. And if we grow that Spirit, then that Spirit will produce fruit that looks like joy, and it looks like love, and it looks like peace. But at the very core, though, like John has said, our joy must be based in Christ. Apart from that, we cannot have joy if we do not have Christ. So when we have a correct understanding of who Christ is and we have an active devotion to fostering the Spirit's work in our own hearts, it is at that point that we have those things that we can truly have joy that comes not from ourselves, but that comes from the Spirit. And it comes from the Spirit at times when joy is almost impossible to possess ourselves. So believers, let me, let me encourage you with this today. Live. Live knowing who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Live allowing the Spirit to work inside of you and live, believing that the Spirit will produce joy in your heart as you foster a closer relationship with Him. hope that's encouragement for you today. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, I guess, be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you have inspired it through John. Thank you that you've used men like John to write the word 
for us, for our benefit. Thank you that uh, we're able to study it. I thank you that um, you've provided and given us the ability and the freedoms to do so, that we, don't, we do not have to face persecution like so many others believers have. Lord, would you um, bless the rest of our service today. May everything that we do, our worship, be directed towards you, that we together as a congregation would direct our praise and our worship with each other to Christ. May Christ be honored today. May he be glorified. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.